But this morning we're here in Galatians chapter 3 as we continue on in this series together, Set Free and Live Free. Something that I am learning in my life um, over the past nearly 10 years, Brian's going to be 10 years old on Tuesday, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, parenting is hard, right? And, and there is, is nothing, I believe, that uh, exposes uh, just how in over my head I am in life than attempting to be a dad. And there's nothing more terrifying than attempting to be a dad, especially as a Christian and as a pastor when you recognize that when God speaks to us and as God reveals himself to us in his word, he always, often, especially in and through Jesus Christ, reveals him to us, himself to us as father. And now all of a sudden, the weight of being a father is overwhelming, almost, because I am fully aware of my inadequacies as a father and my daily failures as a father. I use an app to, um, to organize my prayers and a few years ago, we went on a pastoral retreat, and we had a, a friend of mine come in and, and lead us in an exercise. And in that exercise, out of it, I, I wrote this prayer that I pray daily as, as a father. I pray to my father, Father, sanctify me that I might be a father who consistently, accurately, and passionately manifests you to my sons. Teach me your paths of righteousness that I might shepherd my sons toward a vibrant relationship with you through your son. Forgive me of my sins as a father and restrain my sin moving forward so that I might be gentle, just, and wise in my discipline. Pour out your grace and mercy upon me that it might overflow into the hearts of my boys through encouragement, through compassion, and unconditional love so that they may become two confident, joyful, and godly young gentlemen. For your glory alone, would you make me into a father of whom my sons can be proud I was blessed with a dad who loved the Lord and who I never doubted loved me. My dad wasn't perfect. Uh, we grew up aware of that. I know that I'm not perfect, and maybe you're in a situation where you had a, a, a father who was as good as he could be and who you have no question uh, loves you and loves the Lord. Others, though, have grown up with a vacuum, an, an empty space where their father was supposed to be. And as such, they grew up with a hole in their lives and in their hearts and in their relationships that only a father's love can fill. And still others have grown up with a father who was, can only be described as evil, who used and abused the power that they had and instead used their children for their own purposes and pleasure. And as such, those individuals, maybe you're here this morning, and because of that, you have a tragically scarred, marred um, view of what a father is supposed to be. But the reality is, in every situation that we have, you and I are left with an inadequate picture of a perfect father. The best that I can be, I am still falling far short of God, and I realize that to varying degrees, that's the position of every single person in this room, is that as good as our Father was, as evil as our Father was, we all have in common this reality that the picture that we have in our earthly Father falls far short of God and His glory. That has led some in our culture to then turn from God 
as he has revealed himself and instead look to other images of God. And that actually, according to Romans chapter 1, is just the result of sin. Sin always manifests itself, according to Romans chapter 1, in such a way that we reject God as he's revealed himself to us and instead then recreate God in images that are more palatable, comfortable for us, that leave us feeling better about ourselves. Most often, those idols, those images, are really little pictures of ourselves. And in doing so, we trade one broken image of a father for another broken image of a father. And what we need to do is not turn from God, but instead turn to God to find out the truth about who he is. And in doing so, we find out something about who we are. Actually, you find out everything about who we are. And I believe that that's what takes place in these verses in Galatians chapter 3 as Paul begins to describe the relationship that is ours in Christ with God. He points us to a better picture of a father and our truest identity as sons. Look with me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 25. Paul writes, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your, our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the truth and the power of your word. We thank you for the declaration of who you are. And because of not only of who you are, but because of what you've done for us, we receive an entirely new identity, an identity that we don't deserve, a relationship that we don't deserve, an inheritance that we don't deserve, nevertheless, each of which are things you love to give, not because of who we are, but because of who you are and what you have done for us in your son, Jesus Christ. So I pray that this morning, Father God, as I know my own inadequacies as a man, as a father, as a preacher, may you shine bright in your word as we take another look at the beauty of our crucified, risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is now, by your grace, brother. It's in his name that we pray. Amen and amen. Hopefully, as we're traveling through this book together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse together, you're learning something, uh, not merely just in, in the sermons and the, the point of exalting Jesus Christ, but hopefully you're seeing how difficult it can be to attempt to work our way through a book. 
because everything seems to tie together, and it's oftentimes very difficult to figure out where and when I should stop preaching, because the reality is um, I could spend hours even on these two verses, or I could spend a year in the book of Galatians, and so I, I walk this tension in going through Scripture. Do I make it smaller bites, but a longer series or a shorter series, and, and not be able to cover everything? But you can see in verse 25, as Paul says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Paul is pulling our minds back. He's continuing the argument that we looked at last week. Namely, Paul has been making the argument all the way back from the beginning of chapter 3 as he's asked the question, how is it that we are justified? How is it that we are, are forgiven? And how is it that we are declared righteous by God? Is it because of the things that we do, our record of righteousness, or is it instead because of our faith? Paul has gone on to argue that based on how God treated Abraham, even before the law showed up, that righteousness always, justification always comes by faith. And that when we look, as we saw last week, to the law to be the mechanism by which we earn our righteousness, we will be disappointed every single time. Because the law served a specific purpose according to God's plan, but that purpose was never to be the means by which we are saved. Instead, we saw last week that the law serves in a certain way as one, uh, the law serves the purpose of one, uncovering our sin. Two, exposing the reality that we can't do anything about it. It imprisons us in that. And it is meant to be kind of like a nanny or a tutor that, that brings us along to a specific point. Namely, it awakens in us a longing for someone who can do something about our sin. And he declares that that's Jesus Christ, the one who is the promised offspring of Abraham, the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, the one who now comes, and in coming, he has brought a new age, the age of faith in Christ. And so the law has fulfilled its purpose. We're no longer under the law, but we're recipients now of a new and greater reality that Paul immediately begins to explain in the verses that follow. Verse 26 can be argued as the climax of the entire book of Galatians. Now, a climax doesn't mean the end. He's not done talking. But instead, the climax is like the peak. If, if we think of Galatians like a mountain, we're going to climb up one side and get to the top and come down on the other side. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 is the peak of Paul's argument as he has built his way up towards this, this mountaintop of justification. And he gets now to this place in verse 30, or 26 where he says, In Christ, we are all now, you are all sons of God through faith. When we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, our mind typically, and, and rightfully so, goes straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the cross that sets us apart in many different ways, but also the empty tomb. And Paul has talked about the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. He's not done with the cross of Jesus Christ, as we'll see when we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6, Paul declares in verse 14 that he would only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, what we find in Paul's writing is Paul never merely stops at the cross. Instead, he looks to the cross and through the cross to something even better than justification. Can you imagine something even better than being treated just as if I had never sinned? Something that fulfills it. 
If you'll remember the question being challenged to the, church, the Galatian Christians by these false teachers is not the question merely of how are we saved, but instead, how are we accepted? How are we welcomed by God? Is it now we've been saved and we've received the Holy Spirit by faith? Are you now, Paul asks earlier in chapter 3, being perfected, being sanctified by works or by the law? I mean, by works or by faith. His argument is it's by faith. And he goes on now in the declaration that he says is this notion that, I, that is somehow even greater than the fact that I've been forgiven and my sin debt has been wiped clean. That's the purpose of the cross. But I have also been adopted and declared to be a son. The way I oftentimes explain this is imagine if I owe a $10 billion debt. If I have a $10 billion debt, I'm not going to be able to pay a $10 billion debt. But let's imagine that someone who is a trillionaire walks in the door. They have the ability to cover that and then some, correct? But imagine if they come in and they, so they walk in, I'm, I'm there, I'm, I'm sweating, they're about to repossess everything that I have. And that trillionaire walks in and, and writes the check for the $10 billion. Guess what? I, my, my debt has been paid. But all of that negative now being paid, what's my balance? What's my bank balance now? Zero. My only hope is to go back into debt. Justification is the payment of my debt. Adoption is when that trillionaire now makes me a signer on absolutely every one of his accounts such that all of his resources are now my resources. Vast and endless. That's the complete picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not merely we can't stop at our redemption, at our forgiveness. We must move through that to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the promise of life of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and then also this uniquely Pauline notion that I am now a son of God. And if a son, then an heir. And Paul articulates this, all of chapter 4, verse 1, he's kind of tying this together. Verses 1 through 5 is a microcosm of the gospel where he explains what we were, what happened to us. He says there's an heir, it's no longer a child, he's using kind of the, some of the same language that we have, but we find out that this heir is, though he's the owner of everything, has managers and guardians who are put in place to take care of things until he comes to the age of the appointed time of his father. And Paul says, in the same way, exactly in the same way, you and I spiritually were at a specific point under guardians and managers but more than that, we were enslaved, he said, to the elementary principles. You see, a guardian and a manager of an heir's wealth and estate, they could be good people doing really good things. The question here is, are these, these managers and guardians under whom we are enslaved, are they good or are they bad? According to verse 3, they are the elementary principles, and there's a lot of debate about what that could possibly mean. But I think as you read on in chapter 4, as we'll see next week, and as you think about the rest of Scripture, what Paul is talking about here is these elementary principles are, in fact, some type of hostile fierce, uh, spiritual force from whom we need to be rescued. 
right? If we're under good managers and good guardians, we don't need to be redeemed. We don't need to be rescued. But instead, whether it be the Jews under the law or whether it be the Greeks in their paganism, they are under this system that is broken, This system that will not lead to righteousness and will not lead to eternal life, but instead only leads to death, to death and to damnation. You see, for Paul, the opposite of sonship in these verses is not actually fatherlessness. Though we're talking about adoption, and our mind immediately goes to orphans, As I've been studying this passage of Scripture, the concept of orphans is not the opposite of sons. The opposite of sons is slaves who must be rescued and who must be given then an entirely new identity. And so this need of rescue from slavery to these hostile spiritual forces that would keep us from God, that would keep us dependent upon ourselves, and therefore on a trajectory of of separation from God, we must be rescued, and the only one who can do that is God. And that's what Paul says he does. In verse 4, but in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, it was God's plan from the beginning because it's in the fullness of time. And in other words, at the exact right time, God the Father chose to intervene. Now, there's a lot of study, and I appreciate the fact that as we look back in history, the time that Jesus Christ came was a perfect time for him to arrive. There were a lot of cultural ideas, and there were a lot of cultural realities that made it beneficial for the world that Jesus Christ came when he did. The fact that Roman rule had created a peace around the world so that people could travel freely. And there was roads where they could travel freely. And there was kind of a common tongue in the Greek language and all kinds of other cultural indications of a right, a ripe time for Jesus to come. Nevertheless, that's not actually Paul's point. Paul's point is that, isn't that God was sitting back waiting for the culture to get itself right and right for the arrival of Jesus Christ. Instead, according to God's will and in God's plan and according to God's time, he sent his, his son Jesus Christ at exactly the right time. And that exactly the right time was so powerful that since then, throughout history, the church has divided time based on before Christ or after Christ. The warning that I think that that would have for us, just as a a really brief side note, I don't want to run down this rabbit trail, but there's a, a very real tendency in the world today and with everything that is going on in the world today to be looking at the cultural significance of specific events and trying then to make that match or meet Scripture such that we're trying to discern the time of Jesus' return. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of crazy going on in the world. There's always been a lot of crazy going on in the world. For the last 2,000 plus years, every generation of Christians, even the apostles, were convinced that the return of Jesus Christ was imminent, which meant they believed it was coming in their generation. And so when we're looking at the cultural signs trying to discern God's time that only He knows, we're distracting ourselves. And so we must be busy about the work that God has left to us and trust him with the time and trust him with the circumstances that are around us. Nevertheless, in his time, God sent his son. 
the eternal second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The fact that he was sent means that he was with God. And there is no indication ever in Scripture, despite what certain cults believe, that Jesus Christ was somehow created by God and sent. Instead, what we find out from this passage of Scripture, also then, then beefed out with the rest of what Paul teaches and Scripture teaches, is that Jesus Christ was eternally with the Father as the second person of the Trinity. He was God. All of God was concerned with our salvation, such that the Father planned it, and the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit now applies it in our lives. And so the eternal Son willingly came. It was not merely that, this, that God was angry and he wanted to do something about it, and so the Son stands up and says, hey, I'll, I'll take the punishment so that you're not angry anymore. No, God in his love sent his Son to do something about our sin, and the Son willingly came. And this eternal person, the Son, was born of a woman. There are certain ancient heresies that believe that Jesus Christ was actually some spiritual entity who merely passed through Mary like water passes through a pipe and came into this world and was this spiritual entity. But that's not what Scripture teaches. Instead, what Paul clearly notes here is that he was born of woman. That's a phrase that shows up in Job chapter 14 verse 1 and Matthew chapter 11 verse 11 as someone who is human. Jesus says in, in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Of all the humans that have ever existed, Jesus says, none greater than John the Baptist. Same phrase. Jesus was both God and man. One person sharing two natures. And that is difficult, almost impossible for us to wrap our minds around, but it is necessary. Because if he is completely God, he cannot fully identify with men. But as one who is fully human, he is able now to not only identify us with us, but then fully represent us before God. Such that when he died in our place, he died as a human substitute for humans. Came at the right time. Sent by the Father according to his plan. Born of a woman and born under the law. Not to say that Jesus was subject in, in any sense like we are, born under sin. Because in a way, Paul is talking about under the law. Throughout it, you can equate being under the law as being under the power of sin. Because remember, the purpose of the law is to expose our sin and our inability to do anything about it. Jesus was not born under sin. Instead, he was born culturally as a Jew. He was born culturally under the law to rescue and redeem those under the law. One commentator says this as he quotes F.F. F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce has noted that while Jesus was under the law, he was nevertheless not under sin. Thus, he himself had no need of a slave attendant, a guardian, or a steward, and he came to bring his people to the point where we too could disperse of the services of those guardians and managers and be set free. And this one who was born of woman, born under the law, sent by the Father, according to the Father's time and according to the Father's plan, came to do something. And that was, he says, to redeem us. Verse 5. Redeem those who are under the law. To rescue us. To purchase us out of slavery. 
Again, the picture here is not necessarily just of a child who's lonely in an orphanage somewhere in the world waiting on someone to love them, but is instead a child who is under the oppressive regime of an evil father who must be rescued, must be redeemed, must be purchased from that place of evil and suffering and pain. And that is exactly what God did for you and for me as he rescued us from the spiritual enemy who is Satan and our sin. And he didn't merely rescue us from the situation and then say, okay, have a nice life, figure it out. He rescued us from sin and from our enemy and he rescued us to a new identity as sons of God so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because of the Father's plan and the Son's work on our behalf, we're not only rescued and redeemed, we become and are treated as sons of God. And that is what Paul is articulating in this passage. And in this, we see some of the fruit of being a son of God. We see, first off, that as sons of God, we receive a new identity. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and done in us, we receive now by faith a new identity. And that's what Paul talks about back in chapter 3 in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ such that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. Baptism is significant, brothers and sisters. Throughout history, the history of the church, baptism has been primary, not just as a sign and as a symbol, but as an important step of obedience and a bold declaration of a simple, single truth. The truth, namely, that the person who deserves death and damnation is dead. Crucified with Christ. That sunk so deeply into my heart this week, and I pray that it sinks into yours. Listen to what I said. If you are in Christ, if you have been saved and redeemed because your faith is in Christ, listen to me. The person who deserves death and damnation is dead. So that no matter what you do today, that person who deserves sin is crucified with Christ. Punishment over and done with, such that you no longer need to live in this fear and guilt and shame that what I'm doing somehow breaks my relationship with God. That person who deserves God's wrath is dead and buried with Christ in the picture in baptism and then raised to walk in a new life. The picture of baptism is the turning away from sin, the death of my sinful self, and the the new life coming to life again in Christ and putting on Christ. In ancient times, in the first couple of centuries, you're welcome that we don't do this anymore. Someone who was baptized was baptized in the water naked as the day they were born. 
And when they, they took off their old, dirty clothes and they left them on the bank and they declared Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior, they turned from the darkness and they, believed, and they declared Jesus, their faith in Jesus. They entered into the water. They were baptized three times, not one time, dunked, immersed three times. Then they came out of the water and they were given a brand new robe, a white robe, to signify a new identity. The person that I was who deserved death and damnation is dead. The person that I am, Paul says, is alive with Christ. It is Christ who lives in me. It is Christ who is upon me. That's the new identity, and that is the new identity that then shapes how we interact with one another and we interact with the world. This past summer at the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Dr. Tony Evans preached and there was a specific illustration that he shared in that when he talked about our tendency as believers to misidentify ourselves such that we get our, our modifiers mixed up. And so we have the tendency to oftentimes refer to ourselves as American Christians or conservative Christians or black Christians or white Christians or anything else. And what he pointed out is the fact that in that case, you've got an adjective and you've got a noun. The purpose of the adjective is to do what? Modify the noun. Modify means change. It means alter. It means affect in some way. So when Christian is my noun, I'm allowing my American identity to define my Christianity. I'm allowing my conservative identity to define my Christianity. I'm allowing my racial identity to define my Christianity. I'm allowing a position to then modify my declaration of faith in Jesus Christ. Instead, he said we need to reverse it such that I am a Christian man. I am a Christian father. I am a Christian, fill in the blank. Christ now defines all of my relationships. And that's what Paul talks about, that these dividers, these social dividers that break up society, things like our racial identity, things like our economic identity, slave or free, things like even male and femaleness are set secondary to who we are in Christ. Which is why, ladies, Paul does not say, does not say we are sons and daughters of God and therefore heirs. You want to know why? Because daughters were not heirs. They got a dowry and then they were their husbands and they were dependent upon their husband's inheritance. Instead, what Paul talks about here as inclusiveness is that all of us, whether male or female, when we are in Christ, we all are sons and therefore heirs of God such that our identity now is in Christ first. And when, brothers and sisters, we allow our politics, our culture, or our education, our socioeconomic level, our gender, when we allow, listen, the world is all about identity right now. And how I identify myself, whether male or female, or nothing in between, whether homosexual or heterosexual or any of these things else. When we, brothers and sisters, I've said this before, when we turn any of those down to the question of choice and leave the conversation of identity as Christians, we step off of our battlefield and onto theirs. When in reality, every issue is an identity issue, and what is at stake is do I lay down whatever it is that I would want to choose to identify myself, do I lay it at the feet of Jesus? such that he now is the definer of my identity. Because of Christ's work on our behalf, we receive a new identity, but we also, as sons of God, receive an intimate relationship, such that according to verse 6 of chapter 4, 
Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Remember, the issue at hand that, is the, the, the Galatian churches and Christians are being challenged with is the question of what is the, the basis of God accepting us? Is it the things that I do for God, or is it instead my belief in what God has done for me? Paul says that when we believe in what God has done for us in Christ, we become sons. And the Spirit now lives in us. So here's the thing. If the Spirit is inside of us, if God has adopted us and he has put his Spirit inside of us, is it possible then for God then to not want to be with us? No. If his own spirit now dwells inside of us, then God's hands are always open. If we are his children, his hands are always open. We are always welcome in his presence. So brother or sister, you are always welcome before God. And as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we must be those who are postured in the same way that God is postured with our arms wide open to welcome anyone to come to Christ and not put up any barriers. But instead, no matter where you've been this past week, no matter how heinous your sin, no matter how horrible your circumstance, if you are welcome before God, you must be welcome here. And so our welcoming atmosphere is not merely defined by, as a church, those who walk in the door and who are like us, but our welcomingness must be for all who have come to draw near to the Father and to declare you are welcome here no matter how stained, no matter how sinful, no matter how broken, no matter how outcast you are, you are welcome to come and be loved and receive the grace of God. Because you and I are near enough to God that we don't just merely call him Father. Yes, Father. Have you ever watched any of those old British comedy or old British movies or something, and they, and, or even some of those, those American colonial or anything else, and they refer to their, that just seems so alien to me, to call my dad father. It seems formal. It seems almost just, like, weird. Instead, it's dad. There's an intimacy. There's a relationship such that you and I will talk about it. Even adopted children will say, okay, I have a father, biological father, but my stepfather or my adopted father, that's my dad. I think sometimes we've infantilized this when we say that Abba means daddy. And it's true. Abba, 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 Abba. That's, that's what a baby can get out of its mouth. Just like in the same, dad, 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 dad. Mama, mama, mama. Why? Because it's what a baby can say and what a baby can, can enunciate. But really and truthfully, there's an intimacy there's a closeness, there's a nearness that Father is in our hearts. We are in his presence and we can address him not form formally all the time, but as dad. Just like Bryant or, or Emerson might be in another room and they're having a problem getting something together and they say, hey dad. Just this morning, Bryant is, is reading a book. He's reading Chicken Soup for the Soul. Right? And I'm getting ready, I'm walking out the door. It's like 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm ready to come to church. And, and, dad, and, and Bryant's on the couch and says, Hey, Dad, what's a C-section? That's a great conversation to have just as I'm walking out the door, right? 
But nevertheless, there's an intimacy there and there's a vulnerability there such that he is able to call, just to say casually, hey, dad, can you answer this question for me? And that is the type of relationship that we are to have with our heavenly father that the one who is high and holy and who has authored this incredible plan of salvation is nevertheless dad, near and concerned, and who loves you such that you don't have to redefine him so that you can, can have a better, more comfortable, be more comfortable in the presence of dad. Instead, you can accept him and you can see him as the perfect father who blows away all of the imperfections of your father, no matter how horrible or heinous they were. The reality isn't to hide who God is. It's to unveil who he is so that it can destroy all of the broken images that we have of him. And not only are we welcomed near to God in this intimate relationship, God goes even further, right? If, I mean, if, if there could be any promise, it, if there's any treasure in the universe, it's God, right? Being with God. God is what makes heaven heaven. Jesus is what makes heaven heaven. And yet, nevertheless, God goes one step further because we see the generosity and the love and the trajectory of this holy and wonderful and awesome God such that as sons of God, we not only receive a new identity and an intimate relationship, we also receive this internal, eternal inheritance such that everything that belongs to Jesus Christ— the Son of the Father, the second person of the Trinity, who is heir to all things. If we are in Christ, all that is his is ours. So how is it that we can ever be afraid of whether or not we're accepted by God? When our faith is in Christ and we are in Christ, we are drawn into God and we are then given everything that belongs to a firstborn Son of God which is the universe. We've not only been set free from the elementary principles of the world that would enslave us, we are now those who will one day, according to Paul, rule even over angels as the sons and daughters of God. And so my question to you in conclusion is, are you experiencing that close, intimate, personal, powerful relationship with God? If not, then my invitation to you today is turn from yourself. Turn from your systems that you're trying to work to keep God happy. Turn from your religion and to this relationship that God makes available through his son, Jesus Christ, to you and to me. As we'll see next week, we have a tendency to live as, as adoption amnesiacs that we forget that and we're constantly pulled back to those elementary principles that once ruled us and enslaved us, but we've been set free, Paul says. Are you living in that freedom? If not, the answer is not to, to be better. It's not to try harder. It's not to do better. The answer is to believe better today. That the person who deserves death and damnation is dead. And the person who is here and alive in you is Christ. Such that God welcomes you. God wants you. God wants to work in you and through you. If you will just surrender. Surrender to him today. Perhaps you need to do that for the very first time. You've been afraid of God. 
You've been afraid of this father. You're enslaved to fear. God wants to set you free today as sons of God. Give you a hope and a future and eternal inheritance today if you would just simply surrender. What does that sound like? It's really simple. God, I know that I'm broken and I know that I struggle with sin. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that displeases God. That sin comes from within me. God, I need you to transform me from my heart all the way out. Would you rescue me from slavery to sin today? And would you adopt me as your child? And God will save you. If you're here today and you are a child of God, now's the time to celebrate it. Now's the time to live it. To live in love with God and in God's love every single moment of every single day such that the world is compelled by that love as you love God in front of them. And I invite you to live in love with God and live it out loud this week, knowing that you have been redeemed and you have been adopted, such that God welcomes you, God wants you every moment of every day. And we'll see a call to walk in obedience, not because that's what makes God happy, but because in doing so, that is living out our identity in Christ. So I invite you, if you would, take a moment. Would you go before the Lord in prayer? Would you ask Him in this time to reveal to you where it is that you are trapped in fear, where you are living a lie, how it is that you can now live in confident assurance because of Christ you're rescued, you're redeemed, you're adopted. Take a moment and pray and I'll close this in a moment.